Hello, and welcome to another episode of the Trial Lawyer Podcast. My name is Gabriel White, with the law firm of White and Garner, formerly known as the Utah Trial Lawyers, and I'm here with... Scott Powers. Who is of the law firm of... Snow, Christensen, and Marno. Which is a law firm of quality... Lawyers? <laughs> and other great and wonderful things. We, we do everything. Yes. So, um... Today, we are going to talk about a subject that is near and dear to both of our hearts because uh, we encounter it in various ways pretty much every time we take a case or look at taking a case, which is the subject of tort reform. Um, A little background. Um, First, Scott is going to explain what is a tort. But before we get into that, Just a brief word from our sponsors. Unfortunately, most lawyers are never available when you need them. Many of them don't put your interests first. The lawyers at White & Garner do things differently. We take each case very seriously. We will always put your interests first. We represent people who have been injured in accidents. We also handle commercial litigation cases. Other law firms assign your case to a paralegal or secretary and put that person in charge of managing your case. Getting your actual attorney on the phone can be a nightmare, no matter how important your case. At our firm, every case is important, and every client gets our full attention. We only take cases that we are comfortable taking all the way to a jury trial. Every move we make helps us better prepare your case for trial. To get the best results at trial, you need a lawyer that is paying attention and that is not afraid of a jury. You need the lawyers at White & Garner. Each client of White & Garner has access to their attorney at any time, any day of the week. You can talk directly to your attorney about your case at any time, day or night. If we do miss your call, we will get back to you within 24 hours. If you hire a lawyer from White & Garner, we will be there for you when you need us. That is our promise, and we keep our promises. Uh, tort. Tort is something that typically involves some kind of a, a failure to comply with a duty that results in some kind of injury. We see it in a variety of contexts, and that's not a dictionary definition. It's just what I see in my cases. When somebody gets injured because somebody else doesn't act reasonably. Doesn't do something they should have done. That's they, a duty. If they fail to com- to act to do what a reasonable person would do. Mm-hmm. Which is a duty. Yeah. And and that's not not to be confused with the uh, you know, middle school which is my, of duty like make duty. And uh, you know, which is which is you know, I have tried to hire myself out as an expert as what the reasonable person would do so that I could solve cases instead of fighting them but but I, so far no clients consider me to be a good example of the reasonable person. But, so, (laughs) you know, when you hear about, um, so Torah Forum is a movement that started, I believe, um, back in the 70s, 80s? I don't know that it really has a specific... Well, start or end point. I mean, it's been, it's, it's... Any time, I'm sure that it was probably something that was well, discussed the, from the beginning of torts there, themselves. But there is a definite, there is a definite yeah, movement. There is a definite movement that started, 
in the 80s and 90s where there would be certain academics, um, pundits who would try, who, who would put forth the idea that there are too many lawsuits in the United States. And well, that, I think one of the issues isn't so much too many lawsuits. It also comes along with uh, too much money being awarded in those lawsuits. Yeah, we got to rein it in. And, and a classic example of this from from a, cl- a good way to understand. Put it this way: a good way to understand tort reform is the propaganda associated with McDonald's coffee cup case, which is um, most people became aware of it in the context of those who espouse this tort reform idea that we should limit people's ability to get, um, to use the courts to get compensation uh, for injuries because tort reformers would say, oh, this woman got this, you know, seven or $800,000 or... I think she made over a million dollars and most people think she got paid a million bucks because she spilled coffee on herself because she's the idiot. Right, exactly. And it turned out as people looked into the case more that it actually was an argument against tort reform because the woman, uh, you know, explaining it in in the way that Scott did, and he he's not partisan on this issue necessarily by doing that, but explaining it in that way, which is how most people found out about it, uh, tended to make it look like you know the system was being abused or the juries were being misled. And, you know, enough was enough. Frivolous. You can't just... Yeah. I want a million bucks. I spilled on myself today. I mean, you hear that all the time. The the tort reform movement basically came up with that that phrase, frivolous frivolous lawsuit. Oh, yeah. Absolutely. And when you hear people saying that, um, it's... It's a movement that's been going so so far along. People will express these concepts in ways they don't even realize it. Um, and the McDonald's coffee cup case is a good example. And there's a great documentary on this. And I, I, I apologize to the makers of that documentary because I do not remember the coffee name. Coffee cup of it. documentary. Yeah, um, but I have not seen this. It essentially digs deeper into this this very issue, and it turns out that several facts were left out of that discussion of that case. First, that the woman's award was actually substantially reduced by the judge um, to somewhere around, I think it was around $200,000, that her she was injured so badly. Yeah, she got third-degree burns, had skin grafts on her Yeah, she had, had skin grafts on her genitals. And the, the, the biggest fact that's usually left out is that this was not the first time that McDonald's had been sued or had been told that their coffee was too hot. That, in fact, the, the jury verdict um, was the number that it was because that was the... It was loosely based on what McDonald's expected to make in a single day by selling coffee. And that, you know, the the arguments put forth was that McDonald's had made the conscious decision that... To harm someone. That they would make... Well, not to harm someone, but, you know, it's kind of like in the movie Fight Club where they talk about, look, if the costs of, of fixing the problem are more than the costs of paying out judgments, then they don't fix... No, 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 no. What, what happened is they, they knew 
that they knew a couple of things that went into their decision making ultimately that resulted in what were punitive damages being awarded. Mm -hmm. They knew that the high, the closer to the boiling point they could maintain the coffee, the more coffee they sold. They did studies. Yeah. They showed it. Exactly. But they also knew at the same time that the higher, they, the closer they got to the boiling point, the more likely it would be that they would injure their customers. And so they made a constant, conscious decision to injure customers in order to make more money selling more coffee. Exactly. And and so, yeah, what, what the jury did is they wanted to send a message to the, you know, to the company that this is not appropriate. You can't, if you're going to make a decision consciously uh, to sell more coffee at the expense of the safety of your customers, well, then you're going to have to pay for it when it goes bad. Yeah. And they didn't want it just to be simple, oh, here are the medical expenses. They wanted it to hurt a little bit more, and so that's why you got into the punitive damages realm. But all people do when they read the article that talks about the case is they see spilled coffee, they see million dollars, and they know that in their own lives they're spilling stuff left well, and right. And they and think, you know what? No, I deserve that too. Oh, this is frivolous. It's excessive. It's out of control. We need tort reform. And it's interesting because in, in Utah, the... Uh, Utah Supreme Court has held that um, mentioning the McDonald's coffee case uh, without this kind of explanation in an, in like a closing argument in a case is so misleading that it has overturned jury verdict yeah, as a result of, of somebody just, just mentioning the McDonald's coffee case. I think that was all they said. Um, was enough to overturn it because it mis it tends to mislead jurors who have heard this one narrative about what that case was about and not had the opportunity to hear well actually that's very misleading so what I mean I think the main goals of tort reform then if we're still defining tort reform are they either want to make it harder to file a lawsuit in general they want to make it make the amount of damages you can recover you know, they want to cap that they want to lower it. Or, or they want to make it uh, uh, more difficult to get a jury trial. Right. You know, to get to, to get to the end. So maybe it's not making it more difficult to file it, but it's making it more difficult to get to, into, so, get to the end of the road. So the question is, where does this movement come from? And, and the answer to that, I think you have to look at qui bono. Who benefits? Latin. Ooh. Ooh, yes. Oh, man, we're lawyers now. The only reason I went to law school is so to much a, a little Rest bit more judicata. certiori. Yeah. Rest ipsa but, but who, who? loquitur. It, it's typically, that it's typically a movement wrong, that's... A, it's, it's, it's typically a movement that's associated either with large corporations or with insurance companies because they're the ones that tend to um, be in court more often... Uh, that tend to, and to a certain extent, the medical field um, has been involved in this for a very long time. Like I said, in, in a lot of cases, so long that um, people don't even realize they're repeating arguments that they've heard from tort reform uh, propaganda. And there are now, you know, the question becomes, well... Is this something that is appropriate in a court system like ours? I mean, you mean what is appropriate the in the court system? You what, mean what's, it to be mentioned? Or? Well, well, no, we, we'll get to that. But, but what is the purpose? Is it contrary to the fundamental purposes of the American justice system? I think so. I mean, think about what you're talking about when you're talking about a tort. You're, you're, you're assuming someone has been wronged. 
They're looking for redress. They've been injured. Well, let's not, keep it. It's not even. It's not even. Let's keep injured. it simple, though. You can be well. They were in a so car accident. Not necessarily they got, physical injury. They got injured. Somebody broke a leg. Keep it simple. Well, I'm not going. I'm just saying in general. Right. I'm not, I'm not giving a specific hypothetical here. Okay. Johnny's right. walking down the street. <laughs> no, no, none of, none of that. Johnny's not going to break his leg. Here. I'm just talking about general. And then, and the principle in my mind is that if you have been wronged and it comes as a result of someone else's behavior and that behavior is unreasonable. You, you need to find a way, you need to have redress for that. You need to be able to be put back in the situation you would have been if they would have conformed to the norms of society as well. Um, you know, so you take your broken leg, for example. How did the broken, broken leg get, how did that well, happen? And, well, if you just jumped off a rock and, and landed wrong on your leg, well, it's not the rock's fault, you jumped off. But if you were pushed off the rock, all of a sudden you have someone to look to as to the causation. And, and to give And you need to be able to go after that person and to give those, to right the wrong. The those who may not be familiar with it a little bit of uh, understanding, one thing that I have had clients ask me before is, okay, so we have a case against this person who's injured me. Um, are the police going to get involved and um, you know, will this person be arrested? And the answer is no. It's Part of the civil well, justice the system might be no. You you can't make the private prosecution right. happen. But okay, who's to occasionally, say occasionally, five zero. I'm making a distinction here. All right, <laughs> let let me make my distinction. Occasionally, the two do intersect, but this is part of a separate justice system, essentially, or a separate part of the American justice system, which is the civil system where we go to right wrongs between people. Whereas the criminal system, you know, people oftentimes get confused and they say, well, you know, there's all this plea bargaining and why doesn't the victim get more say? Well, in the criminal system, the, the person bringing the action is not the person who is injured. It's, it's the government. It's the people um, of the state of whatever. Um, whereas in a, in a civil case, it's uh, the injured party and their lawyer. Now, um, so I think the O.J. Scott Simpson I, is the, the good example of that, right? Found yeah, there, there was there were two cases where there, first there was a criminal case, and when um, O.J. beat the criminal case, then there was a, a civil proceeding, and you know the standards are there. You know, we could get into a whole, that's a whole nother podcast is the differences between the two systems and why, uh, for example, OJ lost one and won the other, but... He was um, mean to me. I want to press charges. It's always yeah. pressing charges. Well, yeah. guess what? You that's, don't get to do anything. You have to thing. convince the prosecutor right. to bring a criminal complaint. Nobody you know, presses charges. It's action. interesting that it's interesting so many things in TV, legal dramas, so wrong. Or, or even crime dramas are not, For this is a bit of a tangent, but for example, um, almost every action movie or action TV show, you'll see the investigators show up and they'll be like, well, how recently did this happen? He said, oh, it's it happened just recently. I can still smell the cordite. Okay. Well, what they mean is they're trying to say is they can still smell gunpowder. But cordite was actually hasn't been used in bullets since the Civil War. Uh, basically, it was replaced by gunpowder, but it's kind of a TV convention that has nothing to do with reality. And there's a lot of things in the legal field. It's very difficult um, for lawyers to discuss 
legal TV shows and movies, which is something we've tried to do before and we're going to try and do again uh, because there is the entertainment aspect and then there is the part of it where um, the, uh, you know, the inaccuracies and unrealistic parts of it just drive you insane. So I've heard actually, and this is another tangent going farther on what you're talking about, is that if you watch The Wire, they talk about he's good police. Yeah. But apparently that was never really used like that. I don't know. The Wire, but now it is used. Well, and The Wire is kind of unique. Ugh, we're living in tangent land. That's okay. <laughs> if, if it turns out that this is uninteresting, I can cut it later, but I think it's, no, interesting. it's, interesting. it's interesting. David Simon, the writer of The Wire, actually spent like a year or two uh, working writing along with the Baltimore Police Department that. before he uh, started writing the, the, the Wire. So um, that's why so many of the conventions in there are, are more accurate uh, in, a, in, in a sense. But there, the other thing is, is that you can't really depict um, the justice system on TV because people would not watch it uh, because it takes, you know, even simple cases can take years to get resolved because to ensure fairness we have to go through a process where everybody has the opportunity to get evidence and to make arguments and to um, you know do present their side and that I, to lead back into our main topic is the problem with tort reform is fairness oh yeah which is a, a fundamental goal of our of our civil justice system is fairness is to that it, it's most fair I mean, there's a lot of different ways we could come up with to compensate someone who like was like buying a big truck who was well no big no lifted truck no I thought, sorry I thought here, we were talking about compensation here, here we are you could you could come <laughs> up with a lot of different ways to decide how a person would be compensated or by whom in in a civil situation you could um, for example, in an extreme example, you could have them fight it out, and the winner is the one that gets compensated. You know, I've, I've mentioned that a lot of times to people when they talk uh, about what they do and what I do, and I say I'm a lawyer, and you know, they, they kind of get a little bit defensive, and you say, hey, you know, I just think about it like this. I am the reasonable alternative to a duel. Yeah, Because exactly. how else are they going to solve the problem? Exactly. Gonna, well, somebody's going to die, or they got to... Pay somebody to sort it out for them. Or all their their relatives are going to go over and burn down their house. Uh-huh. And, you know, I mean, it's Field McCoy. This you you compare our legal system the to the winner is the one that's to alive. to the law of Moses, for example, where you know there was a Lex Talionis uh, throwing throwing. Is out. this more Latin? I'm, I'm winning the Latin battle. Wow, well, right I didn't know there was a Latin battle. Well, you started but, uh, you started with the throwdown. How about Tyrannosaurus Rex? Uh huh. I don't. Yeah, that's Latin. I guess technically. Okay. Anyway, so tort reform's effect on the fairness of the justice system. Well, if the justice system's purpose is to, in in the tort concept text, is to provide a fair way to compensate people who are injured, um, is it appropriate to? try and convince potential jurors um, or actual jurors in a court case that um, 
you know, this particular, a particular litigant or someone who's bringing a particular claim should lose because we have too many lawsuits. I mean, is that even a, is that even a valid argument? I don't think so. I think the statistics are actually showing that lawsuits in general are kind of leveled off despite population going up. So there well, are... One of, the be- one of the best examples I've heard is, is you always hear, you know, one of the reasons why medical costs go up is we have too many lawsuits. And they did a study on that and found that, that litigation and resolution of malpractice claims accounts for only 2% of the cost of medical care. And that a whole host of, with the number of errors being committed. Well, yeah, the study out of Johns Hopkins University it says it's like the second or third leading cause of death in the United States is phys- physician error. Um, uh, it gives me some pause when you put those two arguments together. But um, you know, we hey we, hey now, I have to say that uh, our firm defends physicians, and uh, I don't think that they make that many errors. Well, John, just, just going on the record. John, Johns Hopkins University Medical Center would disagree with you. Well, I've got two buddies that uh, graduated from there. Maybe they're just more error prone. <laughs> maybe, <laughs> maybe, maybe they just. I don't know. Well, they they did a study. They did Sorry, the study. Ben. Sorry, Dan. They did the study not on their own physicians, but on uh, physicians. Oh, everybody nation, else's nation, physicians nationwide. Uh-huh. So they were trying to determine what was the you know what impact, uh, what what was the cause of death. And, um, you know, what percentage of, of the cause of death was attributable to um, medical error? And they found that it was so high, a lot higher than had previously been reported, primarily because a lot of times it doesn't show up on the death certificate. You know, it'll say cardiac yeah, arrest. I don't know. Versus, I, I hear you're on another tangent. You can I, read, I, read the study. I, I would have to see the study because I'm a little bit skeptical. It is, it is a reputable university. You know, if you bring in a cancer patient and then the, the doctor does something to possibly not diagnose it quite as you know quickly or uh, accurately as as he might have otherwise done, I don't know that you necessarily say if, it was the physician's error that killed hey, the if, guy that was suffering from cancer. If 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 another doctor says he breached the standard of care, and that if he had gotten the chemo sooner, then he would have a you know a fifty or sixty or seventy percent chance higher chance of living that's the, so another thing that's he, important he, he pulled out the chance of me another 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 important thing that most people don't realize because of the tort reform movement is that in civil cases they're different from criminal cases in that the standard of proof is more likely than not which means that you know in different states it's it's slightly different sometimes it's 50% sometimes it's 51% in Utah it's 51% if if you know i we were to, one way we describe it is if you had a scale that was balanced on both sides and there was nothing there and then you put a feather on one side so that one side dipped down ever so much then that side is more likely than not yeah and 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 uh, that's different from the criminal system where, um, you know, you have to, the, the prosecution has to prove it by, uh, be, you know, by beyond a reasonable doubt. And uh, again, we could go through an entire discussion as to why that is. But um, part of the problem with the tort reform argument is that it's so ingrained that it's really hard to root it out. Um, from potential jurors, because I think we both agree that it's not an appropriate 
argument. In fact, if, if you were to go into court right now and argue that, hey, in your closing argument in a case, ladies and gentlemen, we should we, we got too many lawsuits in this country. It's making everything more expensive. Your insurance is going up like crazy. You should find it in favor of my client. Well, I think that for does. that reason alone, yeah, you, you, you'd, be, you'd be you'd be reversed, right? Yeah. Oh yeah. I mean, you can't argue that your client should win because there are too many lawsuits. Well, it's one of those things that plays on people's emotions and it, and it gets them to personify. It's like the golden rule. But but it's the same. But it's it's you would agree that it's inappropriate. Yeah. Right. I think so. And and part of the reason it's inappropriate is because we believe that that it's not fair. That you know everyone should have an equal shot in this country. Um, in court, everybody should have their day in court, and that they should be able to be judged. Their case should be judged on the merits of their case alone, and not based on you know some preconceived notion about you know something that has nothing to do with their particular case. And um, you know, which is why which is why reptile theory is so wrong. Well, let, we can get into that. We can get into that <laughs> oh, in a different take con- context. Actually, I can show you how reptile theory. Has, is perfectly compliant with. Oh, um, sure it is. This with, uh, with 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 the same. Make them worry. Make them worry about but, communities. But, it's, but, it's a convenient way around the golden rule. But but uh. but uh, you know that you know that using the golden rule is actually legal in Utah. You can use golden rule arguments. I didn't think you could. Green versus louder, and this actually was argued by the defendant. Really, the defense bar what is what kind of crazy any, wants to use a gold Oh, I'll argument. tell you exactly. In Green versus Louder, he wanted to be able to argue. We won't yet. It we was won't a car accident. It was a car car accident, and I don't know who the attorney was, but he wanted to be able to argue that he that any that any other that what? Uh, that if the jurors were in there that his position, they would have made the same error he did essentially. That's and the, so they wanted to make that's this the golden, golden rule argument. By the way, that, for argument. all the listeners, that's the golden rule argument. You're not supposed to make those generally, but I didn't. You're not allowed. That. You're not supposed to put the. You're not supposed to make arguments. Imagine well. if you were. Blah, blah, blah. And the and the rule in Utah. Now a lot of judges are skeptical about this. Don't like to follow it. I've seen judges carve out exceptions. Because, I've seen it kicked out because all because the time. hey, this is not even when we've argued Green versus Louder, which is still good law in Utah. I've had judges say, well, this isn't a car accident case, and if it was, then, you know, my ruling might be different, but, um, I, you know, I, I'm going to distinguish that case because this case involves a slip and fall or something different. But um, but in Utah, the rule is that golden rule arguments are acceptable as to, um, I believe it's liability, but not damages. So you can argue all day... Um, that you know about what the person should have uh, done, okay. but you can't you can't say huh. put yourself in this person's position. What what sort of damages would should they get for this? All right, that makes a little more sense. Anyway, would allow it, but I still think it's but it's wrong because I think you could creatively make an argument that oh, I'm just talking about liability, but you're you're leading them implicitly into the you know, topic, consideration of the damage. A topic for another day, and I think okay, just well, just for the that, record. So you, you want to you, hear you grossly if that's what you think the, the if the reptile theory nah, that's is. That's not what I think the reptile theory is. You have you probably haven't read the community read the book. standards. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No. Right. Um, which are which are yeah, which are standards of care? Oh, my reptile brain. Oh, standard of care. Yeah, garbage, yeah. garbage, garbage. We'll do reptile. We'll we'll deal time. with that some other time. But um, uh, 
and we can have a real <laughs> we can have a real nice fight a real about discussion. That. We can have we can we can battle about that as much as you want. I don't think it, I don't think reptiles anything that plaintiffs attorneys haven't been doing for a long time. We'll, I again, think, we'll get it next time. I, I think it is the same argument, just in different words that plaintiffs uh, attorneys have been making for years. Yes, yes. I agree. Which is why it's so surprising <laughs> Which that is, defendants are so frightened by this. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Um, well, I mean, if it's effective, of course you got to you got to inoculate. You've got yourself. to yeah. If, if the plaintiff might win, you've got you to got do to whatever, stop that crap. You got to do whatever you can, like convincing no people there are too what. there are too many frivolous lawsuits in this country. Oh, um, <laughs> no, um, we see the violence inherent in the so, system. So let's talk about some of the ways that. Before we get onto that topic, um, the tort reform movement tries it has tried to um, shift the balance. What, what were you going to say? Well, speaking of shift the balance, so do you think that the shift from having a key that you stick into your ignition and, and you know where it is is worse than now where we just have a push button start and you leave the key in your pocket? I like having a place for my keys to go. Uh, I have no opinion on this topic. All right. Wow. Okay. Uh, Sorry, my keys were in my pocket, and they were... They poked me when I moved in my seat, and I, I thought, and you know what, I wish... We'll pause here so that I can edit that out, hopefully, if I remember. <laughs> um, so some of the things that, um, you know, those who pursue kind of a tort reform agenda um, try and do... One of the things they try and do every year in Utah is do away with the collateral source rule, um, which is a, a rule that says that if a plaintiff, because we want to encourage people to buy health insurance, if a plaintiff goes out and is injured and their health insurance pays for their care, then the defendant can't get up and say, well, the plaintiff doesn't have as many damages. Because he's already been paid. Because he's because insurance now, paid for the it. Collateral source rule is absolutely necessary, and the reason why. And I don't but think they there is a bill introduced every year. Really. By the tour reform guys to and and that's one well, of the big that's things. Because there's probably the, an insurance executive paying the, somebody to submit the bill every time. Of course. It's never going to get anywhere. Which is the tour reform meaningful movement. discussion about this particular issue. It has We're gotten talking about the collateral source rule. It, it has it, but it has gotten somewhere because. You can ask your buddies in to do medical malpractice litigation. Wow. The, tort, the the collateral source rule has, at least in part, in Utah, been abolished. Really? As to in medical malpractice, it just can't be told to the jury. So after the jury makes a decision, the judge is supposed to subtract off what's been paid by insurance, unless there unless it's proven that the plaintiff is going to have to. What well, is the, the insurer give sub, up their subrogation? It, and that's the exception to it. Is okay. if the amount that the insurer well, then, is well, going to have to subrogate. Well, that's the Ah, Latin. There you go. Yeah. It means all things held equal. So in that instance, so long as the you know that bid is paid off to the insurer, you're good to but go. But that's but that's not what happens in any think, other type of case. Well, I and I think it's it shouldn't happen in other types of cases because and here I'm putting on a what's the difference. Now. Well, between a mal- medical malpractice case and well, say, I don't legal, think, I don't think there should be a legal malpractice. I, I think they got away with one there, right? But the collateral source rule has it, it absolutely should be in some place of your, because some of your colleagues are going to beat you. My to colleagues, death. your colleagues are, are going to beat you to death when you get back to your office. Yeah, that may be the case. Well, I don't think they're the legislators. They they, they probably don't listen to our podcast. Yeah, they, they probably don't either. But uh, I, I, you absolutely have to have it. I don't think that someone who injures me 
should be able to, in any way, shape, or form, benefit from any agreement that I make with an insurer or anyone else to protect myself in the event of a catastrophic loss or something like it. Right. And that's what the collateral source is designed to stop. It, it, you can't, you, you know, if you're a tortfeasor and you hurt somebody, tortfeasor is the name that we use to say the guy, the, the guy that did it, the cause of the problem. Right. And that person should not benefit. The defendant. Yeah. That person should not benefit from me having the foresight to get whatever insurance because that I we had like, we take. like people buying insurance. We do. And we want them to have it because it's more efficient that way. Now, but even so, again, it, the tortfeasor should not benefit from that. When the jury is considering, uh, you know, I had a hundred thousand in medical bills, and then I pain and suffering for another hundred thousand. Okay, well, let's just say for grins and giggles, you've got a potential two hundred thousand dollars case. Well, if the insurer paid a hundred thousand, do you want the jury to only give you a hundred? Sure. No, that's not right. That's not right. And and some regardless of, the, of whether or not they can subrogate to any or all of it. some of the other issues that arise um, with tort reform type arguments is you know it, it, it's almost prescient that that you know at least in Utah um, you know there is in the Utah Constitution you know long before these types of arguments were being made at least that I'm aware. Um, they included an open courts clause, which basically, and I'm totally going to screw this up because I'm <coughs> as familiar with the Utah Constitution as I should be, but that, um, you know, if we're going to take away a right that exists at the common law, we have to provide some sort of equivalent right and equivalent system, which is one of the reasons why work comp is, uh, passes the open courts musters because it provides an alternate system of compensation. And the Utah Constitution provides certain protections for um, certain causes of action, especially the, the wrongful death uh, statute. And there have been several cases where restrictions and caps and limits have been placed on recovery that have been struck down by the Utah Supreme Court because they happen to to have impact someone's right to bring a wrongful death case and um, or or to claim some type of damages even and the Utah Supreme Court has found that it unfairly abridges a person's right to bring a wrongful death uh, cause of action and uh, that that is inappropriate now um, so Scott, any thoughts on that, or just no? Nah. I mean, nah. I mean, I, the open I, I courts briefed, existence. I briefed, I, I briefed this issue when it. Yeah, and I'm trying to think of how much I can say without being a, a bad person because I don't know that it was really attorney-client. Let's just say this: when I worked as a clerk in law school, I briefed the issue, and I had a senior partner at the firm I was. Of working. the open courts clause, or of the Rumpel opens courts clause in connection with the wrongful death in connection with a medical malpractice claim. Ah. And I think it's actually been definitively ruled upon at this point, but back then it had not. And is this I, about, about, about non-economic damages? Whether or not you can apply the damages cap to a wrongful death verdict in that, a medical malpractice. That has been definitively it uh, has. dealt with now, yeah. And, and it, you can't, right? You can't, yeah. And that was, so that was what my 
what my so research memo said. Losing is what we've been talking about this whole time. Now, I said it. I, I, to, I told the senior partner in my memo 12 years ago, 13, 14, whatever, four, no, that must have been 14, 15 years ago. Yeah, when I, old. I know it's we are old. I'm, it's tur- right. I'm turning 40 in like two weeks. Uh, but I, I said that in my research memo. And I got reamed. He did not ever use me to do another research memo again because I told him the way it was going to come down. And, and I, when I saw that come through the, uh, you know, the, the, the court, you know, the case reports or whatever on, on cases that have been recently decided, <laughs> it, was, it was such a happy day. I was like, see, I told you. Well, and that's, that's, one, of the, one, of, that's one of the problems with the, with the, the anyway, tort reform. That's, that's one of the problems with the tort reform movement tort reform arguments is that they've been around and they've been made for so long that people don't even realize that that's where a particular concept comes from and they have a hard time setting that aside which is why these the courts have also ruled that it's an error for the court for a a court before trial to restrict the plaintiff um, from asking jurors if they have been exposed to certain tort reform arguments or propaganda or, um, you know, if they hold certain beliefs about, you know, if there are too many lawsuits in this country and there have been two or three cases that have been overturned because judges have said, no, I'm not going to let you ask that question of a potential juror. And, you know, it turns out that the Supreme Court says, well, that's that's reversible error. Um Another area, this is probably the last one we're going to have talk, time to talk about today, is uh, in America that I think drives tort reform folks bonkers, is the way we deal with attorney's fees in the United States. Uh. Um, you know, you'll hear, if you ever sit down with your, your lawyer and ask, well, can I... Most clients will ask, well, when we're done with this, especially if they're paying by the hour, they ask, well, can I get my attorney's fees back? Uh, the answer is maybe. The answer is generally no, unless in Utah the rule is unless there's a contract that provides for it or a certain statute. So, for example, uh, claims against the government for violating your civil rights under Section 1983, um, include it includes an attorney's fees provision. Where Lean the judge, claims, bond claims, a lot of statutes provide for attorney's yeah, fees. Yeah, or, or contracts. Say, hey, if, if, we, if we have to fight over this contract, whoever wins can get their attorney's some fees back. Some do, some don't. Um, and that comes up, that was a, as a fundamental split when the legal system was established in the United States because in Great Britain, um, actually the opposite is true. Uh, they have a loser pays system where if you file a lawsuit and you lose... You better be right. And um, then you have to pay attorney's fees, which has a major chilling effect on people filing uh, litigation. And you or don't do it. Yeah. I mean, essentially, you know, you've either got to be wealthy enough to be able to absorb that cost... Or um, you've got to be darn sure that you're gonna be, you're win you're gonna win, or it's it really doesn't work to file um, a case, and and it's also part I wonder of how the, prevalent though those. I mean, I'd like to see statistics for the way that pans well, out. Well, it's called the British rule, so I, I'm no, assuming it happens that. in Britain. No, I know. I would like to see statistics for Britain though, and just see how how often you know the. They I guess per capita, 
Because I would imagine the, the, the incident of injury is similar to here, right? We're not extra injury prone here. No. It would be interesting to see you know, how many fewer lawsuits are filed and then of those lawsuits, how many of those actually result in the loser getting all the way through to the point where the loser actually has to come out of pocket. Well, and it may, it, may, it may result in a lot more settlements as well because people I would may, so. say, but may I, say, I have oh a question that's chilling. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, you could not have seen things like some of the civil rights litigation um, that was filed in the United States back in the 50s under this, uh, under the British system. You could not see the kind of, um, you could not see the kind of litigation against tobacco companies. Um, I mean, I, I heard once, and I, you know, I don't have a source for this, but there were several hundred cases filed blaming the tobacco companies for false advertising, for causing deaths um, before the first plaintiff won a judgment against them um, because, you know, they're, it's an enormous industry with, you know, essentially unlimited resources versus, you know, usually either someone who's dying or uh, someone who, uh, you know, some someone who's widowed or... Uh, because their their spouses died because of lung cancer, and so to try and put those people on an even playing field and require I mean, they're already not on an even playing field, but to require them to also bear the risk of of paying attorneys fees if they lose makes it almost impossible to file suits like that. Yeah, um, you know we it, we also have the issue access of, to justice. Yeah, we also have the issue of, you know, it's, it's also a rare thing uh, that the United States allows contingency fees in most kinds of cases. There are a couple, couple of exceptions that aren't, we don't need to get into here, but where the lawyer, you, everyone's obviously heard of this in a, in a commercial where the lawyer says, we don't get paid unless you get paid. We don't get paid until you get paid. And that allows, essentially, without, without those... If those were not legal, you wouldn't be able to file a lawsuit unless you were wealthy. It essentially makes it so poor people can file lawsuits, and and typically there is no poorer person than someone uh, who's been injured. Someone who's work anymore. yeah, who's been horribly injured or had a family member die, and now has you know a provider die, and now has to figure out how to how to feed their family. Because you know somebody else was decided they wanted to go out drinking at lunch with all their buddies, and then decided they wanted to see how fast that uh, Ferrari really could go uh, on on I eighty, and um, you know and, and killed someone, and to not have the availability of a contingency fee contract um, is something that I think you know. Um, would decimate the American uh, uh, civil court system and uh, also the existence of these uh, types of arrangements uh, makes it fairly clear that the United States is not designed, the civil justice system is not designed for tort reform. It's not, um, the, the, the two don't go together well. Um, generally, when tort reform arguments make it into the courtroom or make it into the legislature, um, they tend to make the American justice system less fair 
and make it work in a way that fav- that disfavors individuals and favors people with money, large corporations, and insurance companies. Well, I think the takeaway from today is tort reform is not really, I don't think it's based on any real statistics or need. Rather, it's something that's kind of a self-serving defense bar thing and you know typically I and to hear that from, def- and to hear that most from of Scott my de- most of my is, clients are defense bar but uh, ultimately to, I, I've never really bought into the whole tour reform thing I, to I don't hear that see from Scott is an amazing uh, statement revelation you can, none, of, none of you can see the single tear running down the side of my face but it is a tear of joy uh, because he's finally uh, starting now, to see the lights. I'm not, you know, G- Gabe is convinced of the righteousness Tomorrow, of every cause. I don't necessarily next, agree with that, but I think that next when the week, cause next is righteous, gonna, it needs to have a place. You're going to see Scott cast. Scott, Scott's going to be cast as the James Woods character in the revival of the movie True Believer, oh, where boy. he's pounding on the table and 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 uh, insisting for justice. I want justice. Uh, he wants you know everybody to have their. Their, their day in court. And, Not everybody. Uh, um, and uh, yeah, so uh, amazing day today. We got something done, something very important. We've converted Scott Powers. No, we haven't. Well, we'll let the viewers be the judge. Or the, the viewers, uh, huh? <laughs> Tune in next week. Thank goodness. That you're not viewers, uh, because neither one of us we have we, we both have faces. I think that that uh, we're, Speak made, yourself, we're made for podcasts man. and 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 for radio. And by the way, Gabe's not wearing pants. Thank you so much. Yes, I am. Thank you so much for listening. We hope that you all subscribe. Um, we're trying to put out one podcast a week. Uh, sometimes we're not able to do that, but we do our best, and um, we welcome. Any comments or feedback that you might have, feel free to post them in the comments section or send them to the email that's on the website. So thank you very much and have a nice day.